Hey everybody, Moscow here. And quickly, before we start the Sour Hour today, I wanted to let you know that our longtime sponsor and good friend, Dr. Lambic, SourBeerBlog.com's own Dr. Lambic, is launching the Mellow Mink Brewing Company. That's right, all these fantastic beers you've been hearing about on the show will be now available to you at MellowMink.com. They have their Founders Club going. 200 bucks gets you, get ready, eight bottles of aged and blended sour beer that will not be released to the public. Access to all of their other limited sour and farmhouse ale releases before they go on sale to the general public. A pair of custom beer tasting glasses, a club-only hooded sweatshirt, a custom club growler, a membership card, and a challenge coin. Please support those who support the show and get a lot of awesome stuff in return. His homebrew is fantastic, and his production beer can only be better. Check out SourBeerBlog.com. As always, he's got an article up there about the opening of the brewery. And once again, their website is MellowMink.com. That's MellowMink.com. And now, here's the Sour Hour. The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. that time again again talking about my headphones yeah <laughs> it's that time for my headphones to be a little off we're back sour hour on the brewing network i'm your host jay <laughs> back at the brewing network studios uh bevo's not here but scott's here and hey. he's been up all night long i pull yeah a true all-nighter i mean i've had you know, I, sli- I caught like 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. and then mm-hmm. caught a flight or whatever. First true all-nighter, and I can't even remember how long. Did you get some coffee going or? Oh, no. No? No, just beer. Oh, natural? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, don't know what this is going to be like. I'm, I don't know what town I'm in. I'm, I'm past tired at this point. The Brewing I'm, Network Studios in downtown Concord, Scott. Is that where we are? I think I said are? that already. Okay. I think I said I feel that. like we're somewhere else, though, kind of. <laughs> we could be. We're definitely <laughs> further in our relationship. That's how I feel. We've gone all the way. Yeah. Touch. Yeah. Awkward touch. Okay. That's for you, everyone <laughs> watching on brewingnetwork.com slash TV. Uh, and we have another in-studio guest, our mm. third or fourth, or really fourth in a row, if we count the Rare Barrel team. Yeah, that's right. And then what was the show before that? Q&A, maybe? Jay, my memory. I can't. I'm, it's I'm gonna just. I'm, I'm just going to ask right you a hundred questions tonight. <laughs> but we've got Michael Tonsmeyer, our original guest, guest from the first show, back in studio with us. How's it going, Mike? It's uh, great to actually be here in studio and not uh, in my bedroom talking to you on Skype. <laughs> Definitely. It's good to have you here, man. <laughs> and we're especially thankful because uh, you brought some of your great beers with you, some, some wild stuff, funky stuff, weird stuff. Yeah. It'll, it'll be fun to get your take on them. They're, they're not necessarily the world's most delicious beers, but they're some weird <laughs> beers, and uh, I think you guys might appreciate them. Well, yeah, it's going to be fun talking through process, getting into what you've been up to since, uh, wow, I mean, what, August 14? That's Some, right. That's, exactly. that's outrageous. Almost three years. <laughs> but that's a lot, of co- uh, a lot of area to cover, so we'll get into that in a little bit. Join us in the chat, although that might make more work for Scott, so don't do that. Don't do that. Don't email Scott at no. thebrewingnetwork.com. Please, no. Uh, I'm available, jay at thebrewingnetwork.com. Listen live, Brewing Network app, search BN Mobile, 
And be sure to subscribe and leave feedback on iTunes or wherever. And make sure not to subscribe to the other BN shows. Bruce Strong, <laughs> Dr. Home, Brew Brewing, Style, or The Session. Speaking of The Session, we can't possibly have more feedback. I was talking about this last time, but... Review of the week. Okay. We have plenty of reviews, Jason. <laughs> Sorry for that, Mike. <laughs> Let's see. How about one from... Maybe okay. I should be keeping track on like a spreadsheet of what I've done, of what I've read. Did I read? You've been up all night. Let's just power through. The podcast source <laughs> for information on brewing sour beers. It's also like a good toothbrushing after the throw up burp that is the session. Oof. That's from Wonky Tea. Okay. Did I read that one before? Let's just roll with it. Whatever. Thank you, Wonky Tea. Thanks, Wonky And thanks to all of you guys who both subscribe and leave feedback on iTunes or wherever, in whatever city. We're in or you're in. Review of the week. God, that's awful. <laughs> didn't, I, didn't I lay down a new one from last show? That's a little uh, less you, uh, abrasive. You laid something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, haven't just, I haven't cut it out yet, but yes, you did. All right. So that's that's the top of the show right there. That's how we do it. Yeah, I want to show you what I pulled out, why I was up all night, replacing the uh, back bar here at the, well, at the Brewing Network Studios. Yeah, the, bre- yeah, mm-hmm. the yeah. Brewing Network Studios. I just want to show both you guys a, a picture. You guys are you guys are wild fermentation. So you're used to working mm-hmm. with wild yeast, and you've got pellicles and goop. And, and, Mike's and a mad stuff. fermentation. And Mike right. is a, exactly. So you may be less disgusted by this than I was. Uh, this is what it looked like when I pulled the back bar out of there. Ooh. Oh, I'm showing Jay on my phone here. It is, yeah, uh, it it is, is a concoction it's of... It's gross. Of rust, mold, general goop, bottle caps, broken glass. Mike's not impressed. He's seen moisture. worse. <laughs> did, did you pitch it into something? Now you that, you that got was, some scraping, some swabbings? That was what I was going to ask you. Can I make a wild hop grenade beer out of this? I would heavily hop that ward, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Maybe self-select some things that aren't going to kill you. But okay. Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? Yeah. Anyway. Job well done. Yeah, thanks. And uh, whatever you show me a picture of looks great. I don't know what that is, though. Oh, well, you don't know where it is. Uh, I don't know what it's called. How about that? <laughs> okay, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Moving along. <laughs> Let, listen to the last show. Jester King, Avery Swanson, and Jeffrey Stuffings. That was a terrific show. Great show. They were uh, pulling double duty with um, doing the session just a few weeks earlier. I'm sure our episodes were way better than those. Hey, this is Avery with two brown thumbs from Jester King Brewery. <laughs> Good old Avery. Uh, out of context, that just sounds hilarious. This is Avery with two brown thumbs. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have to go back and listen to the show to find out why that is. What else do we have? Is that it? I think that's it for the top. Okay, great. Let's get into some stuff. Yeah, Mike. Mike. What's up, dude? Let, you know, it's been a little while since you've last been on. What is new? Not, not much. Know I mean, who it's you really are. just what two two and a half years. I yeah. mean, you know what? What is that in someone's life? You've been living off the royalties from the American Sour Beers book, of uh, course. You do not get wealthy writing a book about beer. <laughs> that wasn't your Bentley offer. Oh no, oh. no, it's that's the rental. Yeah. <laughs> I need I need the big trunk to get the barrel from uh, from, from Rare Barrel. Sure, mm-hmm. he's a big car. Jay didn't send me home with any beer, but he sent me home with a 60-gallon used wine barrel. Empty. Oh, Empty. really? The barrel is for I've been doing a series of boot camps with uh, Brew Your Own Magazine. Uh, first set, we're in Burlington. I'm in town uh, doing a Santa Rosa set this weekend. Mm-hmm. We're doing Indianapolis in November-ish, I think. I'm not sure it's been sort of fully, fully tacked down, but that's the plan. A whole bunch of people, a bunch of, you know, who's who of homebrewing. Gordon Strong is, has been doing them. Um, in the, the Burlington one, we had uh, Sean Lawson. Out here we've got mm. Vinci Lurzo. Uh, we've got Sean Paxton. And uh, 
people just get to do a, a whole day with somebody. So rather than the sort of 45-minute seminar that you might get at NHC or CBC or something like that, you get six hours of me talking about barrels. In this case, I wanted to do something hands-on, and that's take apart a barrel, put it back together, take off the head, um, show how to install uh, the Vinny stainless steel sample nail, nice. um, do some leak repairs, those sorts of things. So it's it's a really fun hands-on thing. I I think when people are coming out for six hours or something, they do not want to hear me talk for six hours. <laughs> well, I don't know about Four that. Four and a half, yeah. you know. There's... I don't want to talk for six hours. I'm already getting hoarse, and we're only about 45 seconds into this thing. <laughs> well, that's awesome. It's it's definitely great to see that stuff, you know, live and in person, because you can read a great blog like Mad Fermentationist, which you're also keeping going at a prolific pace. Not not what it used to be, but uh, yeah. trying trying to, try to do a little more... Uh, in-depth post rather than the sort of constant throw things at the wall that I started out doing. Yeah, but, you know, there's the reading and then there's obviously the seeing in person, which is oh, really yeah. awesome. And and for the sour wine, I've been trying to figure out sort of things to do, so I'm, I brought out a bunch of sour beers that were going to be blending, a bunch of dark sours. Again, I think blending is one of those things that's very hard to teach someone about through reading. I mean, it really is something you have to do and taste and go along with. I, I just don't – I mean, you can sort of give someone the, the basics and the concepts and the best practices, but to actually taste the beers and see how someone else blends and talk through it, I think, is um, one of those in-person things that really sticks. Definitely, and that's awesome. And I want to get into uh, maybe a few of the topics you might cover in that class. I think I'm sure there's a lot of crossover. Also, you know, what's new on the blog, what's – you know, so we've got some other stuff that we talked about earlier today when we we're hanging out drinking beers at the Rare Barrel – Things you're working with, with, you know, different yeasts and stuff like that. Yeah. We'll take some, some Q&A stuff in a little bit. But uh, one thing I just wanted to have you do is kind of reintroduce yourself, reintroduce the American Sour Beers book. Because, sure. you know, it, I've heard some people pick the podcast up at, you know, this episode and go forward. Let, for the people who have not gone back to number one. What is that book? I've never heard of it. So, yeah, American Sour Beers was a, sort of a culmination of the first six or seven years of my blog. Um, it started out as me just sort of screwing around. Uh, my friend Nathan Zender, uh, originally just sort of a homebrew buddy, now the head brewer at um, Right Proper Brewing in D.C., had kicked around the idea of doing a book with me. We both ran blogs. We actually did a, a brief podcast together in the, the early days of beer podcasting. And the concept of that was we were going to breweries, we would try some beers, we'd get a little tour that we'd record, we'd get a recipe from the person. We sort of had a system that would worked out. Um, and it just turned out to be a whole lot of work, and we really weren't interested in it. Uh, thank <laughs> you to all you guys who put in that work every week. We really had different concepts for what that book would be. And I kind of said, hey, if I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write the book that I really want to write mm -hmm. about the topics, you know, sort of the nerdy, gritty details. Um, I love reading like beer journalism and writing about beer, but what gets me excited and what gets me to open up a book again and again is those real specific details on when and why and how much and what you do differently and how you started and why you changed and all those sort of um, you know little little bits and pieces of detail that you might want to put into practice at your own brewery, whether that's a, a home brewery or commercial brewery. And so as I was you know, writing out, hey, here's what I think about this. Here's what I think about that. I had a couple of BYO stories where I was talking to Lauren Salazar or Vinny or whoever else. And I would always go, oh, you know, maybe I'll ask a couple more questions. And I was just blown away by how open and honest and forthcoming people were with both what worked for them and their big mistakes. And that was actually one of the big things that Brewer's Publication worried about when I brought to them. 
they don't want this. They don't want you know people knowing that they had to throw <laughs> this barrel away or that that you know those bottles screwed up because they didn't clean whatever part. And by and large, everyone just said, no, no, we don't want other people to make that same mistake. Mm-hmm. And so after I'd gotten sort of all this detail, I said, hey, I can't just self-publish this. And, and luckily, um, Christy at Brewer's Publication had been looking for someone to do a book about American sour beers for a while and had been told by who's who of who you'd expect for you know that first generation of American sour brewers that it, the time wasn't right yet, that people were still thinking, you know, working things out and opinions were changing. And for me, at a certain point, you know, you, you have to do something or you're never going to do anything. I didn't think sour beers are like that 10 years from now. It's not like everyone's going to have all the answers and there's going to be one process that everyone is going to have to decide on that's the one good way to make it. I mean, if anything, I think the same thing that's happening in Sour Zapping and IPAs and a lot of other things, that there are you know different shoots going off and different breweries are coming up with what their process is and what their best advice is for a given situation. Yeah, definitely. And what I really love about the book is you outline a lot of the nitty-gritty details like you're talking about, but... I think my the, when I first opened it and kind of did the the flip through, you know, like you do with the new book, and then I saw in there some almost like flow charts when there were all Sw- these swim like, lanes. They're sw- called swim lanes <laughs> 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 that you know, and that there'd be a title that's like, all right, the Lost Abbey or Russian River or New Belgium Brewing Company, and it really like crystallized it for me. And I was you know in the midst of being at the brewery down in Orange County and kind of doing a lot of this research. Uh, myself, and then I realized, oh wow, I didn't really have to do any of this because you were doing it th- at the same time. But the way you map it out to make it transferable across kind of different breweries processes, and you can understand the the lifespan of a sour beer, I think was really innovative, a way to present the information, but also just practically very useful for a lot of brewers out there. I, I have to give a shout out for that design. I, I love the homebrewing subreddit and I had posted a couple of basic ideas that I knew I wanted to present that information in, in sort of a graphic form. I couldn't figure out. I had more like more flow charty things, but you know, you would have, you know, it would split or something like that. And then it looked like you were making choices and someone mocked that up and sent it to me and said, Hey, no charge. Just send me a copy of the book when it's done. And it's great. I did. I think probably (laughs) if, if if I didn't and you're listening, let me know. Yeah. Send us an email. (laughs) That's awesome. I want to get a lot more into a lot of the information that's come from the book and all that stuff I talked about before, but uh, I want to get to some questions if that's, if Scott's ready for that. Sure. I'm not ready. I'm I'm going to check with him just before every question I ask Scott. First off, are you ready for this question? Then I'm going to ask the question because mm-hmm. when you've been up all, yeah, exactly. When you've been up all, <laughs> that's tough. But all these questions, whether Scott's listening or not, are brought to you by sourbeerblog.com. Mm. Follow along with all of Dr. Lambic's adventures. Sourbeerblog.com. Now, I actually have a very important question as it pertains to the blogs. Now, would you say, Mike, that your rivalry with Dr. Lambic is extremely mm. intense or just moderately intense? Yeah, good question. I think all the bloggers get along pretty well. We really don't, you know, it's it's a big it's a big pie, and there's enough slices for all of us. And uh, I don't think any of us are publishing enough that anyone's like, boy, like I I don't have time to read all three of these blogs that you know occasionally cover sour beer. Right. Okay. Extremely disappointing answer. All right, let's get to the question. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm glad he's sponsoring our. So I was hoping for a little heat there. <laughs> all right. This is uh, from Eric Erman, who says, "Hi, Jay. Love your show. Sour Hours, the only podcast I listen to. Hey, I've been talking could, with Philip Emerson." 
two or three more. Yeah. It's the only podcast. Branch out a little bit, Eric. It's all right. So Listen these... to other band shows. Like, oh, sorry, no, wait. <laughs> you already did that one. <laughs> did, didn't you? Yeah, I, I did. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so Eric says, I've been talking with Philip Emerson over at Almanac about making the perfect hoppy sour blonde and getting the culture right. Mm. He mentioned he uses a Brevis Brett pitch in primary, but has a sourdough culture as part of a mother pitch. This is uh, this is on Gen. Oh, it's on Gen forty nine. Sorry, and he says uh, this is more of an accent as opposed to emphasis. Uh, his pitch changes depending on the barrel stock. As of late, he has a um, a pretty hop tolerant lactose strain and is brewing increasingly hoppy wort to correct occasionally. So the question is, there's a couple of them. Uh, one, do you have any good reading on how to make a sourdough culture for brewing? Is it similar to making a bacteria culture? Let's start there. Not where I thought he was going with that, but <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe two is. Well, let's just let's do two in the water. Okay. So sure. he also says you have a commercial strain you love for hop forward sours. Okay. Isn't well, that's what I was hoping he was yeah, going to. He ask. says he really loves the culture in home sour home. He said he thought maybe you could share some of your processes for arriving at, at that level of clean acidity. First off, thanks. Great. That beer. that culture uh, has changed the both times we've done it. The first one was uh, Brett Dre and Lactis, Lactobacillus delbruckii. The second one is just way too many to even name. Brett's PDO, Sac, Lacto. I just read a terrific article in uh, the online edition of Brew Your Own Magazine from December all about hoppy sour beers. Did you read that? I did not, know. No. Oh wait, the one the one I wrote. You wrote yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to toss this over to the expert. Let's talk about hoppy sour beers. Yeah, no, it's it's I, for a long time I've been saying like IPAs are so popular, sours are so popular. It's weird that that crossover has taken so long to get going. And there have been examples for a while. I mean, Cantillon brews them, uh, New Belgium brews uh, Le Terroir, great example. But there really are a lot of approaches, and that's sort of the tricky thing about it. It's like anything in sour beers. There's no single simple answer. And you were just telling me that you've rethought the way that you guys are brewing some hoppy sours. And sort of the easiest, simplest way to do it is to not get a really hop-tolerant anything and just make a really sour beer and then yeah. dry hop it. Mm-hmm. And that's really the simplest approach. From there, then there's sort of more complex answers. But I'm so to the question, I'm not sure there is a great commercially available hop-tolerant lactose strain. Right. Are, are you aware of one? I mean, I always thought that Brevis was, of all of them, the most hop-tolerant. But, I, you know, I agree with you that I think, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it, if you just don't dry hop it, or, you don't want to dry hop it early anyway. So if you hop it early, then wait for the acidity to develop. There's the implication there that all the hop character is going to die off over time so you might as well just develop the beer you want then hop it um but yeah we've talked about different things we've done at the rare barrel including kind of just basically brewing not that bitter ipa and then blending in some sour beer after that uh making sure the beer is not too sour and dry hopping that uh we've dry hopped in fact in the tank right now we have a dry hopped uh saccharomyces and Britannomyces beer with uh some noble hops and that's going to get hit with some sour beer at the last minute again. But you kind of outlined a bunch of different stuff to yeah. do in that BYO article as well. Yeah, so I brewed three different hoppy sours for uh, National Homebrewers last year that I served as part of, part of my talk. And the one that was sort of universally enjoyed the most was um, I did a, a quick souring, just lactobacillus. I think it was probably the Omega lacto blend that's real mm-hmm. quick and real aggressive um, before any hops went in. And then once it hit the pH I was looking for, like 3-4, heated it up. 
add hops at that point once the, once it hits like 180 Fahrenheit. So you're not extracting a lot of bitterness. You're not getting a lot of um, isomerization of the alpha acids. And then, hey, great, but you're also extracting uh, the hop aromas that you want. Then you can do that primary fermentation. I use the uh, White Labs Brett Dre variant with Trois mm-hmm. variety, the actual Brett one, not yeah. the Sac Trois, um, and then dry hop that. That worked out really well. Got really sort of tropical, fruity, passion fruity. It's relatively quick turnaround. And and honestly, for me, I'm I'm an advocate of when you really want to blast a, a sour beer with big, big, big flavor. It may not be worth aging that beer for a year, two years, three years, and developing all those subtleties and the delicate oak notes only to blow them out of the water mm-hmm. with, with three pounds of apricots per gallon plus an ounce and a half of citra. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I think there are values in those beers, particularly when you have a big mixed fermentation program and that there are some beers that after aging that long, maybe they don't have the the right balance or the right nuances or whatever to go into that master you know, showcase the house funk blend and great dry hopping fruit, whatever is a, is a great answer for that. But if you're setting out to make those beers, they're really bowled over with other flavors. I think the quick souring, uh, lacto and then Brett, something like that can, can be a really valuable tool in your, uh, toolbox. You know where you get the quick souring lactobacillus from Omega, Scott? I have no idea. Wineandhop.com. Oh yeah. In Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah. They're carrying that and Giga East, our friends too. I'm going to say some more things about it now. <laughs> Seamless. Most, <laughs> He's a pro. Most items are going to ship within 24 hours. Best of all, BN listeners in the continental United States get a flat $8 shipping rate on orders under 50 pounds. And our BN shipping in the nose field of the shopping cart, and the discount will be taken off after checkout. The Wine and Hop Shop, Wine and Hop. Dot com. Everybody that supports the sponsors, we appreciate it. It goes a long way to help and keep the lights on around here. You know, I don't know if you guys share this sentiment about hoppy sour beers. I always remember thinking, ah, bitterness and acidity just don't mesh as, right. as two flavors. And I don't know, give me a fruited sour all day. The hoppy sour just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, people have figured out how to make it work. I think it's the same thing that's happening with IPAs as well. I mean, when I first started drinking hoppy beers, it was all about how many IBUs do you have, 120, 180, 300, 1,000. And now places are really more competing on who can get the most hop flavor, the hop aroma. And sure, you want some bitterness in there and you want that balance. Um, But the idea isn't to have just this tongue-scraping bitterness and no aromatics. I think pair that with the fact that a lot of these new hop varieties that are coming out push those citrusy, tropical, fruity flavors that are really at home with acidity. And yeah. when you when you think about passion fruit and pineapple and all these flavors that you're getting out of hops now, you you think of sour. You don't think about bitterness in the way that you might with oranges or lemons or some of the classic Centennial Cascade, those sorts of hop aromas. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. All the new hop varietals are much more in line with what sour beer supports, and there's plenty of Brett's and other sour, like just the yeast and bacteria mix that produces a lot of those flavors on their own. So it's nice to match those up. Definitely. Um, I just wanted to touch on, we did skip the sourdough part of that question. Oh, yeah. But I would just test it out in a small amount of wort and just kind of check the viability there. You can just do a pretty simple eye test where it's like, is this fermenting? Um, But I don't know, Mike, do you have experience with sourdough cultures? Yeah, I I tried it once. Um, I I had a kvass kick years ago, and one of the things I did was I bought, um, they've been long out of business, I think they were called was that place called fermented treasures did you ever hear about them Mm -mm. they they used to sell ginger beer plant and all sorts of weird dried cultures um and they had a a bunch of sourdoughs and so i got their san francisco sourdough 
started up in a little bit of work, pitched it into a batch of kvass, and it really didn't do much. I, I probably had 10 or 15 IBUs in it, and that was probably too much for it. Um, but that's what I'd say. I mean, find somebody who has a sourdough culture, a, a friend, a local bakery, something like that, and just get a little nub of it, throw it in some work, get that started up, and um, and see what it does, see if it gives you a good flavor, if it's alcohol tolerant. I mean, a lot of the things that make a good sourdough may not necessarily make a good beer. Sure. Now, one of the ideas I've always had is also to, like, wean it off of just regular wheat flour and into more uh, barley flour. So maybe there's, you know, a little bit of a different carbohydrate load there. And then as you slowly do that, and that's fermenting barley flour, then you start to introduce maybe a little bit of wort into the sourdough starter. Keep feeding it until it's, oh, wait, is this more wort than flour that I have in here? And then you're basically making beer at that point. You've got a, a culture that maybe won't work great as like a primary fermenter, although you can get there one day. But yeah, I think it's, it's a very slow process. I mean, I think that whole, everything I just said may take 10, 15 refeedings mm. to get to that point and a whole year or something like that. So I think it's a long journey. There's a, there's a little bit of uh, sourdough talk in uh, Stan Haramis's most recent book, Brewing Local uh, with Scratch Brewing. They have a sourdough mm. culture that they use for some of their beers. Again, not not huge details on, on how they got it from uh, the bread side to the beer side, but that would be another interesting place to look for. Definitely. Uh, Jay, I know you bring me, you know, all this rare barrel bottles and beers and beers. When are you going to bring me some of your sourdough bread, man? Uh, I just made a <laughs> I just made a terrible loaf. No, it didn't come out good? Yeah, oh, no, what happened? I, so my my theory, I don't know, we can cut this out later, but <laughs> <laughs> cut it, we can cut my mistake out later. Not all this boring sourdough bread talk, but um, I switched to like a different, like kind of heartier flour, and I think it took a longer time to for the culture to start fermenting that. I, I just didn't wait. I, I kind of had like a time limitation, so I was like, all right, I'm going to bake this now and see how it goes and it did not rise at all like it usually would like did the oven spring and uh i think it's because a lot of the flour i've been using is a lot easier for, for the culture to ferment hmm. so you can go from oh you know in 12 hours for the first fermentation and then kind of no need folding it then it's you know another two to four hours and then the oven Oh, you're good with this type of flour. Interesting. But then you move to a different one, and it's almost like, you know, mashing higher and, you know, waiting for, like, a sour beer to ferment out. It's like, well, you know, you've got these more complex carbohydrates maybe. That's, I mean, I'm just applying brewing stuff to yeah. bread making, which maybe is not—I mean, it's pretty similar it's close, overall, yeah. but it's obviously still a lot different, so. It makes sense, though. I think that's what—I just got impatient. Which you wouldn't think no. from a sour beer maker. Yeah, right. <laughs> Barrel-aged only. That's why I like the bread. You can do it in a couple of days. So Yeah, well, hey, thanks, Eric, for the question and sparking yeah. of an awesome bread conversation here on the Sourdough <laughs> Hour. Eric is writing his, in his email signature. It's Hermanos Craft Beer and Wine Bar in Tucson, Arizona. I just mm. want to give that a little plug because Eric, I think he's the uh, proprietor there. So uh, Godspeed with your bar out there, Eric, and thanks for writing in. I used to live there. Not at the bar, but in Tucson. <laughs> oh, I, sh- I would love at Eric's bar. It sounds cool. Yeah. Let's, uh, I need a beer. And yeah. we got to get some, maybe the beers are cold. Yeah, maybe. Maybe not. We'll check on them. Oh, no. Mike's they, beers? They were. Yeah, they were in they're the cargo. Yeah, they're cold. They were in the okay. cargo hold of the of the uh, belly of the plane, right? Yeah. Yeah, oh, they're yeah. ice cold. Good. All right. 
Well, we'll crack into those right after a quick break. We'll be right back on the Sour Hour. Hey, guys, what'll it be? I'm not sure. What do you recommend? A lot of people seem to like the Hefeweizen. Is that a German Hefeweizen or more of an American-style wheat beer? I'm not sure, but I can give you a taste. Okay, great. Great. The Cicerone Certification Program certifies and educates beer professionals in order to elevate the beer experience for consumers. Unfortunately, not every bar is staffed with certified beer servers who can guide their customers through a beer list. Here you go, guys. Let me know what you think of the Hefeweizen. Oh, yeah. That's definitely more of an American meat. But I can hardly tell because this beer just smells like sour butter. I wonder how long it's been since they cleaned the draft line. Yeah, and look at the bubbles on the side of the glass. It's filthy. Somebody should tell these guys about the Cicerone program. For sure. How about we head somewhere else for another beer? Your server should give beer the same respect you do. Request quality. The Cicerone certification program offers four levels of beer certification, in-person classes, and course books for beer professionals. Check them out at Cicerone.org. The Cicerone Certification Program. We know beer. This is Andy Parker, Chief Barrel Herder at David Brain Company, and you're listening to Jay Goodman on the Sour Hour. All right. I figured I'd play it for real these. <laughs> We're back with Mike Tonsmeyer, author, brewer, gentleman. Man about town. <laughs> All around the world this year, right? Yeah. I mean, pretty much every year. Every year, like one one place around the world. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's what happens when you write the book on sour beers. Wrote the book. Yeah. No, it's it's been fun. Brazil, Norway, New Zealand, Fargo. Good deal. Yep. Nice. <laughs> In reverse order. <laughs> I can't remember. I mean, I'm sure there have been, but guess that our uh, the staff here was more excited to see. The whole staff yeah. has read Mike's book. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I, I went to go introduce him. Like, uh, hey, Mike's, Mike's beers are on us and, and uh, you know, introducing him. And they're like, yeah, we know. Yeah. yeah, we read his book. We know who he is, dude. There are a lot of whispers around the rare barrel as well. It's like, is that Mike? Is that Mike? Oh, is that Mike? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't think, I don't know how many came up in... They were all scared to introduce themselves, I think. But Starstruck. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, bartender Nick was in here five seconds ago during the break going, oh, mm-hmm. I'm trying uh, the uh, blonde uh, ale recipe from your book, man, tomorrow. I'm brewing tomorrow. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's, it is. It's always, it's really disturbing when people who are like running real businesses <laughs> are like, yeah, you were a big, we really like leaned on you or like, I've had people who are now professional brewers. Oh, yeah, like you're my first homebrew was like... I'm just a dude in my basement. You yeah. guys should not be basing multi-million dollar businesses on what I think. <laughs> you haven't tried my beer. might be terrible. What do you think? <laughs> I love it. Oh, is my mic on? It's great. Or I just can't hear. Cut him off. Duh. All right. Hey, yeah, Mike, between you and me, dude. Uh, okay. Oh, Go no, You're That's good, awesome. Jay. You're good. Okay. We're back. It's a sour hour. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's talk about this. This is your Goza. No boil. Yeah, so it's I think it's probably as this is to German Goza is sort of how like American IPAs are to like the original English ones. It probably has very little to do mm. except conceptually with the original Leipzig versions. It's more more acidic, weirder, maltier, all those things. Uh, a couple of years ago I stepped up to a, a big old 10-gallon system. And one of the things I've been doing a lot of is playing around with how to split beers. And so this one was a saison that I ran off pre-boil. Mm-hmm. Um, it had some Munich, it had some Golden Naked Oats, it had a whole bunch of pills, 
And once the post mash in the boil kettle got up to about 180 degrees, high enough that I'm going to kill any microbes that are on the malt, ran off into uh, through a, a plate chiller into my fermenter. And at that point, I added the coriander. And there's uh, been some interesting studies on coriander. It has a couple of the same compounds that are in citra hops. It has linalool and geraniol. Citra hops, actually, a lot of the citrus flavor doesn't come from sort of directly from the hops. It comes from this yeast hop interaction, this biotransformation where the yeast strain turns that geraniol into citronellol, beta-citronellol, which has that lemon-lime, hmm. bright citrusy flavor. Um, that you get out of a lot of citra-hopped, heavily-hopped beers. Coriander, and particularly Indian coriander, so this is the stuff that you get at your local Indian grocery store, not the hammy hot dog water stuff that you get at the <laughs> supermarket. Um, and as an ad bonus, for like two bucks, you can get like a half pound of it, which is you know enough for a whole lot of goes as this was <laughs> half an ounce. Yeah, the hard part is choosing which local Indian grocery store to go to. I mean, the myriad options, you have to pick one. We do, but maybe, you know, a lot of our listener, uh, listeners out there, maybe it's, you know. It's, it's slim pickings on the local Indian town. grocery stores? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, perhaps. We're spoiled. <laughs> and so the idea was just to give it that exposure where you're going to get maximum yeast coriander interaction. And to me, I really don't get a lot of, like, coriander, coriander flavor. Out of it. It's much more citrusy, lemon, lime, those sorts of things. Absolutely. I think it's like explosively citrusy, yeah. definitely, in a, in a good way. But I th that's really interesting that and it's kind of the approach you take with a lot of your beers. I mean, from reading your blog for a long time, you know, I think a lot of the beers you they're almost like journeys you embark on from kind of like a kernel of an idea or I've heard this or that about this one part of the process. And then that just launches into you building an entire recipe off of this kind of one experiment. And I, I think this is a great example of one that yeah. worked. Um, and this one, so this was fermented, uh, again, uh, Nathan's Ender at Right Proper. They have a, a house lacto culture that started out as a couple of strains some number of years ago. And they just pitch it like 100 Fahrenheit and let it go. Um, it does the full fermentation, the souring pretty quickly. And um, they do a bunch of really great beers with it, with bot botanicals and hops, Kick Kick Snare, uh, is, uh, Diamonds Fur Coat Champagne with elderflowers, really great stuff. And this one was actually second generation of the culture I had. It was fermented a little cooler, and so I think it um, it's not quite as acidic as it, as some of their beers are, but still it's pretty punchy. But well-balanced and good for a, a hot day. Yeah. Like, like it is. It's unseasonably warm in April, Scott. Um, I think the no boil, and, and we were talking about sort of exactly what that flavor is, but but it preserves sort of like a raw, grainy peanut, you know, some sort of um, mm -hmm. flavor to it. That, that I, to me, I, I I have always done that for Berliner Weisses. I like a little bit of that doughiness in a Berliner Weiss, just because it can be such a boring style otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, de I definitely get that doughy aspect to it. It's a nice um, complexity in a beer that's already got, you know, a lot going on with it. You know, one of your other Brew Your Own articles was, uh, which I, I didn't have access to and <laughs> couldn't find the, the copy around, but that I was really intrigued by was, uh, I believe, talking about quick sour beers or kettle sour beers, whatever you want to call them, mm -hmm. and how to, like, kind of take it from, okay, I've got this sour wort. How do I f actually, like, primary ferment this? Yeah. And what are some of the keys to successes? What have you found people do that kind of turns out a good beer? 
Yeah, so part part of that article was I actually did a test of three different yeast strains, um, three white lab strains. It was like 001, 007, and 565, I think, 566. Mm-hmm. That's the Belgian. Saison 2. And I tried to... Each of them at three different pH levels, sort of that classic, you know, post-boil, 5.1, whatever it is, like a three-and-a-half-ish, and then like a three-flat. Yeah. Um, and none of them did well with three-flat. That is just not a good – I mean, that's, <laughs> I don't know why you would want a kettle sour beer down to three. I mean, that's super, super aggressive. And so the answer was that they all did pretty well at like three-and-a-half at, at a high pitching rate. Um, but generally, you just want to do everything you can to get that yeast ready. So uh, one of the tips White Labs uh, Cara Taylor gave me was to acclimate the yeast in mm-hmm. a slightly lower pH starter. There's a, a, a process that yeasts go through um, called acid shock, where when they first get exposed to a low, low pH environment, they have to do whatever it is. I'm not a microbiologist. Do whatever it is they do to prepare their cell walls to deal with this low pH. And that can take some time. Mm-hmm. And then that can stress out the fermentation and, and lead to other trouble. Um, and uh, there was another study done recently for bottle conditioning. That was another one of the suggestions that yep. they had. Dr. Matt Bachman out of Indiana, one of our previous uh, guests on the show. At, and, and he had sort of the same advice, acclimate to the low pH, get that yeast ready to go in that real rough environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the two biggest things. And otherwise, I mean, it really is it's nice high pitching rate. Um, I tend to add if I if I'm going to reboil, reheat up, I'll add fresh yeast nutrient again, nice. in the assumption that you're depleting a lot of those things. Um, I'm a big advocate of lowering the pH prior to kettle souring or anything like that, just to um, one inhibit any enteric bacteria that you might get going if you have a, a high pH to start, and two, it uh, reduces the amount of protein breakdown by the lactobacillus, particularly at that high temperature. And so you tend to get this one did not particularly show it off, but at least some head retention, a little bit more than that, you know, fizzling, you know, diet sprite head retention that uh, most kettle sour beers have. Gotcha. And when it comes to that, do you have, when it comes to the tempering of Saccharomyces for a kettle sour beer, you know, kind of in the same vein of the, the Bachman paper and the terminal acid chalk with bottle conditioning, is that something you've had firsthand experience with, or you, did you do that with this? This was not quick start in that way. It was a combined fermentation with lactobacillus and yeast together. Gotcha. Um, and that's the direction I tend to go. Mm-hmm. I, I don't do many beers where I really fully sour them first. And when I have done that, I tend to then do 100% Brett fermentation to follow. And that's a nice one, too, because the Brett tends to be more acid tolerant, more um, willing to deal with that situation. Yeah, and that's actually what I was going to ask you about next is, you know, what what has been your experience with Brett and kettle sours? And do you have strains you prefer or, you know, ways you like to treat it when it comes to hot side or nutrient or primary temp or anything like that to ensure the success of these types of beers? You know, honestly, I, I just don't do that many quick sours. The one I did with the hoppy beer was that uh, Trois Rye. That worked out really well. I'd heard some mixed uh, opinions of that strain. Just it can be a little band-aid-y, it can be a little weird, it might not ferment well enough, but it did great work for me. Mixed really well with the um, the hop character, made made a really great quick beer. But otherwise, I'm trying to remember, I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, normally my 
I'm, I'm a together pitch guy. My Berliner Weisses, I pitch usually USO5 and Lactobacillus and Brett all together. Cool. And then do you, when it comes to bottle conditioning with those and other beers, is that a place where you've experimented with the tempering at all, or you kind of have everything you need in there? You know, already? I've actually, I never had problem. I'm, I'm a wine yeast guy, and with the wine yeast, I've just never had issues. I tend not to make many beers that go below 3233, three. and for that, just uh, Pastor Blanc champagne yeast has always been good for me. Rehydrated, definitely. You don't want to throw dry yeast into the hellfire that is a super sour, alcoholic, no hope beer. And plus, it's also just hard to get dry yeast to distribute into a beer and make sure some's getting into every single bottle and you're getting a nice even distribution, that sort of thing. Honestly, I've never had much problems. Actually, the one of the beers I brought, I did have problems uh, trying to uh, get to bottle condition. It was some of the acid harvested from the uh, 007 mm-hmm. version of that beer that was 3.5 pH to start, and that one didn't condition. So, you know, there, there, there goes that theory out the window. <laughs> yeah, that, that is something we ran into once uh, when I was at the brewery. We did a—it it was a hot side uh, wort souring, but it was like an overnight sour mash kind of thing, and fermented it with, uh, I believe it was 001, and we tried to use that yeast again, and it was just so sluggish and just probably less than 50% attenuation. And, you know, it's just kind of bad news at that point. I think you have to gear Saccharomyces up for that fermentation. I've, I've seen better luck with Britannomyces refermenting um, in a primary uh, with subsequent sour beer fermentations. But even that, you kind of... You're, you push your luck and you run out of uh, you run out of steam soon enough after a little while. Yeah. Um, I want to get into a little bit of your talk, and since this show will come out much much after when you're going to be talking, it won't sure. be <laughs> it'll be fresh for every, even people who go to it. You know, you talked a little bit about already your cool barrel maintenance stuff you're going to be doing, but what else about barrels you're going to be talking about? So uh, one of the things I'm doing is pouring three beers. It's the same batch of beer that I've split three ways. One is, and one, one of my sort of big pitches to home brewers, and honestly, it's it's to breweries too. It's to brew to your size, brew to what regulations affect you or don't affect you. And as home brewers, I think people put way too much emphasis on like, oh, well, I need to get a five gallon bourbon barrel because I want to make a bourbon flavored beer. You can add bourbon to the beer. The reason that breweries don't do that is it's illegal. Right. As a home brewer, you can do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> and so I have the same beer. Uh, one is aged on uh, the the black swan, white oak, honey uh, honeycomb, whatever sort of insert that you know you can get for a couple of bucks. One was aged in a five-gallon Balcones malt whiskey barrel, and one was infused with Balcones single malt whiskey mm-hmm. um, that they sent me uh, along with the barrel. And uh, it's really fun to get people to taste those and Invariably, everyone thinks the one that uh, has the liquor infused into it is the barrel-aged one. Interesting. It's, it's a bigger, cleaner liquor flavor, and that's what people often associate with those big, fresh you know, stouts that have you know, a big uh, kick of bourbon. But honestly, it's the same thing with wine or with mead or anything else. Like You can just, as a home brewer, like, rather than trying to source like really great wine grapes, which is almost impossible— just get a decent $10, $15 bottle of wine, try blending it into a beer to taste, scale up that blend, add a, about a bottle of wine to a keg, boom, there you go. You've got a great Chardonnay beer, great New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc beer. It's a fun way to get around. Say you want to do a beer that's hoppy and has some fruit character, great. You don't have to wait around while that beer re on the fruit. 
You've got this already fermented, perfectly treated wine that you can dose into taste. If you want and you're that sort of ambitious person, you can certainly make your own wine and then do that blending that way. But in general, I'm just an advocate of, like, don't put artificial hurdles in front of yourself. Like, brewing is hard enough and making really world-class beer is hard enough. And the same way I think a lot of breweries mix up. You know, if you're a tiny brewery, take advantage of that size. You know, do the weird stuff. Do the experiments. Do the fun stuff. And then when you're a bigger brewery, you can't still do those things in the same way <laughs> in a national distribution. I think there are some breweries that have taken that and run. And there are some breweries that sort of keep trying to do their old – the moves that worked when they were a little, you know, 15-barrel brew pub. And now they've got a 100-barrel system and they're trying to do the same things. And the scaling doesn't work and they, you know, they, they take risks that they shouldn't and, and, you know, it doesn't work out. I would agree with all that. It's got to – I asked one question, then that was a whole bunch of good brewery advice and homebrewers advice all in one. Yeah, so in the, that's that's sort of the, the gist of the barrel one. Uh, we're doing that. We're doing, I've got more of those sort of weird um, honeycombs, hickory and cherry wood and maple and soft maple. And um, and so we're going to do infusions on those and blend those into a bunch of beers just to give, again, people that firsthand knowledge of what does ash taste like, you know, toasted and infused. Um and that's that's always fun. It's you know some of those woods really work out well. The maples tend to be pretty good. And you know, I think people you know there are reasons that oak is is what's made into barrels. It's mm-hmm. got the right grain structure. It's got the right waterproofing. But if you're just cutting something up, it's not necessarily the best tasting wood there is. Sure. Um, and so there are a lot of fun fun other choices out there. Yeah, I think that's an awesome approach, and it you know kind of goes into the whole not just. Home brewer pro brewer divide that you're talking about with wine and liquor infusions and stuff like that, but even just small brewer, whether you're at home or a professional brewer, experimenting with stuff where it's like, oh, I'm going to introduce this wood as a flavor in the beer. Maybe I won't ever find a barrel made of this wood or you know, have an oak tank fabricated of this wood or something like that, um, although some large breweries have done that in the past, but experiment with that and you know take advantage of of your size as a as a smaller brewer i think that's great advice um i want to ask you about kind of how to formulate recipes to kind of support all this but first scott but first this i want to give our listeners uh, a great tip on how to do some awesome recipe formulations how would they go about doing that they would go about doing that with brew guru yeah the aha's free app it's built for home brewers and beer lovers. Brew Guru. Money-saving deals at breweries, beer bars, Kevin, and homebrew supply shops. The American Homebrewers Association designed this powerful mobile app to help homebrewers and craft beer lovers explore the wide world of beer we all share. With Brew Guru, you can <laughs> effortlessly find deals and save money on beer, food, and brewing supplies, level up your brew IQ with hand-picked articles, proven recipes, Trusted resources from the American Homebrewers Association and Zymergy Magazine. In my defense, I get most words correct. Most of them. Use the powerful brewery locator to find nearby breweries, tap rooms, beer bars, homebrew supply shops, and brew pubs wherever you are. Brew Guru will leave you. See, leave, you did good, I try and look at you when I get cocky and then I mess it up. Scott. Yeah, dude. Get the app today and follow the path to beer enlightenment. But I already have it. <laughs> Redownload re- it. <laughs> yeah. Get another phone. Buy another phone because you can. You have all this money because you're saving so much on on beer bars, beer and bars, breweries, and breweries supply and shops, all that stuff. I'm swimming in money. I lost my place. 
<laughs> it's free, Scott. That's the other reason you can do it. Sure. Uh, for iPhone, iPad, and Android devices. So you can put it on all your devices. Learn more, Scott. Where? Homebird Association. Dot dot org. Oh, I feel like I might have said that dot com before, like uh, three shows ago. Maybe you? I don't think so. I would have caught know. it in post. I feel you like oh, okay. yeah, I would have. Yeah, you listen. Uh, yeah, oh, uh, well, when I have to, you really listen. There's even more recipes than there are words in this. <laughs> That's in a this lot library. of recipes. But speaking of recipes, yeah. let's talk about how to build a recipe for a beer that you want oak influence on. We just talked about how you, you know, use kind of a, a single idea, a whim of something that you've you know heard about. Oh, I'm going to build a whole recipe off this. So how would you approach that if you're Joe Homebrewer when it comes to oak? Honestly, I kind of look at it the other way around. I generally try to figure out what the base beer is going to be, and then I try to tailor the oak to that. Generally, the, the bigger the oak flavor the, that I want, the bigger the oak character, the more residual gravity I want. Um, you know, tannins really tend to cut through sweetness, which is why I think so many people think of those big, you know, stouts and barley wines and things like that when you're talking about a big bourbon character, a big brandy character. And that's what I've done, too, when I've done actual barrel aging. Um, just as a home brewer, you know, if you've got a little five-gallon barrel, it's so easy for that beer to over uh, to the, the barrel flavor to overwhelm a beer that's better to go ten, tends to be a bigger stronger darker beer at least at first so with spirit barrels and actually I guess with all barrels the general rule of thumb is that if you cut it in size by one tenth you're doubling the amount of oak exposure so from a five gallon to a 50 gallon you're getting half the oak exposure 50 gallon to 500 gallon you're getting half of the 50 and the 500 and that really comes up quickly. So when I've had those little five-gallon barrels for a sour beer, I don't start with a sour beer. I run a couple of clean beers through it first, get out a lot of that character, and then I'll do like a multi-sour brown or something like that. You know, a bunch of Munich in there, a bunch of crystal malt, um, something that can stand up to that oak character. Mm-hmm. I tend to think that darker flavors work a little bit better with bourbon, um, you know, the vanilla, the coconut, those sorts of things. Jester King does some fun pale beers in bourbon barrels. Um, Oxbow does some, that, that farmhouse pale ale, barrel-aged farmhouse pale ale. That's an awesome beer. That's got some of that vanilla character in a pale beer. Works really well. But you've got to have a very light touch with those things. Um, and I think commercial brewers are at this big advantage where they have a lot of beer. And you can put a little bit of it in a characterful barrel and then dilute it out with beer that wasn't in a barrel, beer that was in a neutral wine barrel. As a home brewer, you have to be a little bit more wary of the timing. Um, so, you know, hey, if you could five-gallon barrel, if you could do a 10-gallon batch and do five in a carboy without oak and five in uh, in that barrel and then pull it out and blend them to taste, I always like to leave a little bit of each beer as is, and that way you can have that comparison down the road because um, it might be that that barrel character tastes spot on on uh, bottling day, on blending day, but that oak will fade with time. It tends to mellow out a little bit, and you may need to learn that, hey, going 10% or 20% more than what I think is the right level now is going to make that beer that's great for six months, a year, two years from now. And then as that barrel gets stripped out, as that oak character mellows out, that's when I would move into the sort of paler, lighter, you know, lambic sort of beers. You know, it really is tough. There, there isn't a perfect, a perfect recipe or a perfect answer to how do you make a beer that goes well with oak. It really is about balancing the flavors of the particular barrel you have, whether it had some previous resident in it, spirit, wine, what have you, 
uh, what sort of oak it is, American, French, Hungarian, with the toast level, all that. In general, I tend to be a lower oak guy. To me, a lot more beers are ruined by too much oak than are ruined by not enough oak. Mm -hmm. And you can always add more. And that's particularly if you're doing oak cubes or something like that. Start at a real low amount. Boil them, steam them, pull out a lot of that real fresh, raw, wood, lumber, Home Depot, you know, aisle aromatics. And just do like half an ounce or an ounce um, to start. And then after six months, they'll have given up most of the character they have. Taste it. Add more if you want more. Um, and that's the great thing about, you know, sort of smaller oak products rather than a barrel is you really have a little more fine-tuning ability over them than when you talk about a barrel. Yeah, and then all the, the storage challenges that go with it as yeah. well. Cool. Well, and, and the oxygen exposure challenges. and I mean, that's, oh, yeah. in that's addition to, to having more surface area for wood contact, you have more surface area for oxygen contact and thinner staves and all that stuff. All that jazz. All that jazz. Possible rare barrel name. <laughs> Trademark the rare barrel 2017. <laughs> all right. We'll be right back on the sourdough hour. Hey, my broom brothers and sisters, this is Jamel Zanisha, and I love a bold, hoppy beer, one that spits resin in your face and makes you cry, Uncle. There are a lot of great hoppy beers out there, but at Heretic, we want to make something as bold, dank, and resiny as possible. We use hops at every chance we get, including multiple dry hop additions. The result is Heretic Evil Cousin. This light golden, 8% Imperial IPA has an easy malt character that helps take the edge off the massive bittering but it takes a backseat to the in-your-face hop character. We make sure this beer finishes dry so the hops can jump out and slam me in the taste buds. If you can't get enough hoppy goodness, Evil Cousin is your cup of tea. Cheers. Ready to riff along with this, Jay? Go for it. Are we back already? Damn it, go, dude. Go, dude. It's so early. You never, you have to come back. I know, but I wanted you to go along with it. Okay. Well, we're all along for the ride on WZ93.5. It's ACDC. Okay, perfect. The re- I, I wanted to bring it in a little early because every time I've brought you in with the vocals, it's like t- it's too late. You know, it's because like, it fades out so quickly. And I, I, I was going to joke. I was like, oh, I like this song. How'd you know that, Scott? <laughs> uh, 50-something episodes might be a bit too many. I think. Yeah, I think we're, we're over though. Just kidding, everyone out there. First and last guest. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We're not even making it to the next part. <laughs> Just this episode is the last one. Yeah, your, your book ends. That's what you are, Mike. Just kidding. We have some great sponsors who keep us on the air. Like who, Jay? Well, there's the iDip. U-Dip? Dip. It's a home or commercial use water testing kit, which incorporates a revolutionary photometer or photometer. I don't know. <laughs> All right. I'll go with photometer. It's the first and only on the market with its own app. The iDip can perform over 40 different water quality tests like chloride, calcium hardness, pH, sulfate, and much more. Podcast listeners should enter code TBN10 at checkout and save $10 on either the standard or advanced smart brew testing kit. Order now and make this futuristic technology part of your brewing process. Visit www.smartbrewkit.com. 
you ever uh, uh, get with JP and figure out the IDIP for your staff? No, and that now it's been happen? months huh. since we last talked about this. Yeah, I know. All these months later, and he still hasn't figured it out. It's not the JP I know. Come on, JP. Another great sponsor, Organ Fruit. Aseptic puree is easy to use, convenient to store, no additives or artificial flavors, simply great expression of the raw fruit. They love working with brewers to help us innovate. Check them out, fruitforbrewing.com. Oregon Fruit, they bring fruit to, to life. life. We had some of their uh, passion fruit yeah. in, in some of the rare barrel beers today at uh, TRB. and Real good flavor. Yeah, really good stuff. God uh, love Oregon like, Fruit. Like the passion fruit. All right, uh, we're running out of time on this show. Darn. We're going to come bring back, bring Mike back, taste more of his beers. But oh, we yeah. thought, well, we have the guy who literally wrote the book on American sour beers. Might as well answer some sour you're, beer you're questions. You're literally the first person to say that. Boom. Here's one uh, from <laughs> from because we're talking about um, well, uh, well, I guess we're talking about terminal acid shock. This is mixed culture terminal gravity. Is the email from Brian Rosenberg? He's writing from Minneapolis, Minnesota. He says, uh, "Hey, Jay and team, really been enjoying the show. He's on his second sour beer. This is back from uh, November of sixteen. So hopefully, he's oh, had a, a few more at this point." He said, "It's been in secondary glass carboy uh, for just over a year now." He said he tasted it today and he really likes how it's coming along. He was looking to try and bottle condition it, but when he took gravity, it is at ten ten. Maybe yep. that is terminal. He says, how can I tell? I always thought that mixed cultures would ferment down closer to zero, 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 basically. He quickly gives the malt bill uh, ten and a quarter of uh, Belgian pills, nine and a half of wheat malt, 9.5 ounces of acidulated malt, and 9.5 ounces of Vienna. He says it was hopped at 10 IBU using sterling and saws in a single infusion mash at 156. The OG was 1065. Said he pitched a Y-East Lambic blend along with some drags from his first sour attempt, which had Bretzy and Lacto. He said he doesn't want bottle bombs, of course, and so he's questioning if it's too high to bottle given the addition of the priming sugar. Yeah, first off, that sounds like a good beer. I've got my views on this, but Mike, once you take a sip of beer, why don't you, or before you take a sip of beer then, (laughs) why why don't you give this a shot? It's totally reasonable. To me, it's, it's about consistency. If you hadn't taken a reading until now... I wouldn't be 100% sure. A, a year, and if it looks done, it probably is done, but you could give it a month. If it's still 10-10, it should be done. I mean, I've certainly had beers start at 1065 and finish lower than that, and I've had some that have finished right around there. The highest I ever had a sour beer finish was 1020. With a similar malt bill? Oh, or? no, it start, started at 1120. <laughs> so it was like a 13%. But so with gotcha. sour beers, I mean, there's just no guarantee it's going to get down to zero. Yeah. It just depends on the microbes, the malt, the mash, all that stuff. Yeah, so many variables there. I think, you know, we touched on it on the show. We're crazy about finishing gravities at the rare barrel to a, you know, 0.1 Play-Doh for a really long time consistency. And that's maybe borderline paranoid. But <laughs> this is a two and a half Play-Doh beer at 1010. Yep. Which is pretty high for that malt bill, I would say. I, I think if we ran this at the brewery... I think even the initial fermentation would take it a little lower than that, but this is a. Uh, it was fermented with just lambic and his uh, old sour beer dregs. I'd be really curious to see what the acidity on this beer was because the only time we've had a pale or even red malt bill finish a little higher is when the beer was very sour. And the acid is what halted the fermentation more than hmm. the malt bill, more than the yeast or anything like that. So now that being said, what we did with that beer is uh, as a test, we 
we uh, put some of our uh, bottle yeast in there and just soft it would ferment out and it didn't it didn't change gravity on a homebrew scale maybe i wouldn't do that i'd buy some you know stronger bottles or something like that but it's tough yeah i mean that's high i'd say that's high for that malt bill Hmm. um if it's very sour i'd also do a terminal acid shock starter but then you kind of get into the same issue area so this is always one of those ones that comes back to us and i i kind of worry about from the homebrew perspective Mm -hmm. because you'll never know for sure and there's kind of no no right answer on this Mm -hmm. except maybe drink it all right away well and yeah just to to go to clarify it was the Y-East lambic blend and then his first the dregs from his own first sour which was bretzy and lacto and Mm -hmm. see now he said he tasted it he said tasted it today like when he wrote this email to us and he really likes how it's coming four months yeah back in (laughs) november now he said he really likes how it's coming along that tells me that maybe it has some of the... I wouldn't think it's that sour, though. Right, exactly. It's just not there yet. Or, you know, maybe he's talking about some slight <laughs> off flavors that are cleaning up. But, you know, you don't want to over-interpret uh, right, right. this. So. Did he say where, what state he was from? I mean, he's, he's, he's in Minnesota. Minneapolis. Yeah, November, it's cold. I mean, depending on where it is, if, if your fermenters are getting down into the 60s, you might see a, a pause in the gravity dropping and make sure they get warmed up and that, you know, you've got a consistent gravity ring. While you were in the 60s or the 70s rather yeah. than down in the 50s or something like that. Could get a false positive, mm. you know, over the winter, especially up there. But now that it's April, <laughs> Minnesota is super hot, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> um, you know, proceed with caution, buy heavy bottles, monitor the bottle conditioning progress, which is going to mean you're going to have to drink this beer regularly. Sorry. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm glad that you're you're looking out for this and you're worried about it. You're in a better position than most people would be who are completely ignoring this facet of it. Uh, thanks for the question, Brian. Here's another one from Scott Dietrich, who says, Hey, guys, I know Jay has mentioned that they have started experimenting with Saison yeast in primary uh, at the Rare Barrel and uh, was wondering what they thought of the results so far. Are they co-pitching with Brett and or Bugs, using the sack in primary alone, then racking and inoculating? Any issues with the high degree of attenuation normally seen with Saison strains? Uh, love the show. Keep up the good work. Yeah, I would uh, refer you to a few episodes ago now. The Rare Barrel crew came on, and we talked quite a bit about this. But to quickly answer it now, I would say, yeah, we really like the Saison experiments that we've been going through at this point. Now it's been, boy, it's April 2017, so... Uh, <laughs> More than you, to your, I have no sense of time. Neither do you, Scott, because you haven't slept in a uh, few, two months. A, a few months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, love it. Like the aromatics that we get, we do co-pitch with Brett quite often, and really like the results there. The low finishing, if you want to call it that, gravity, or the high high amount of attenuation, we found very advantageous to limit the amount of acidity we've been seeing in our beers. So our I've referenced before, bacterial culture is getting stronger and having less available sugar after a primary fermentation that dries out the beer is advantageous. And the splitting up the batch, yeah, we do tons of that stuff. Mike and I were just talking when we were at the Red Barrel about this exact kind of outline where we take, and I think I said this on that show, where it's like, hey, you can start this big Saison beer. It can even be on your in your clean fermenter at home. And then ferment that out so you have a nice saison on tap but reserve some of it put it in a one gallon glass carboy with brett put another gallon into a glass carboy with brett plus dregs or some culture that you order i love that not not just that beer but just overall incorporating 
more saison aromatics and the fermentation dynamics into the brewery overall because of that uh, greater attenuation. It's just a I don't know a lot of uh, Saccharomyces strains that produce as much aromatically mm. as saison yeast. I don't know, Mike. You could probably comment on some yeast that you've tried out that you've really liked in in primary fermentation, but I, I have liked the saisons. Yeah, no, the saisons are great, and I, I think you get some really fun interactions too between the Brett. You know, whether it's um, changing the phenols into different phenols or changing the esters. I've always been an advocate of more interesting primary strains. I, I never was really that happy with the uh, just ferment with Calale and then pitch. Whatever it just sort of it's it make it can make an okay beer, but it's just not as interesting. It's as, a little flabby. Yeah, and same thing. There there are places that do lager primary fermentations, and it, it can make a good beer and can make a consistent product, but it just doesn't have the um, yeah the the interest in the aromatic differences. And I mean, honestly, one of my favorite things to do is is to have a saison yeast ferment a beer out, get real dry, real quick, and then pitch Brett and go into a bottle. And that's where the attenuation is really playing into your advantage. If you can get down to half-degree Play-Doh or something, you can pitch Brett right at bottling and not really worry about bottle bumps. Yeah. Sure, it might get a little tiny bit more carbonated over time. But the fun there is that you really get to taste the beer as it progresses. You get to taste it while it's still a fresh saison at a month as it's just getting a little bit funky a month or two later. And then six months or a year or two years later when it really is a fully wild Brett-focused beer. And speaking of Saison, in the next show, we're going to be tasting Mike Saison ah, on a special Saison blend, which we'll talk about. Actually, might, might as well mention it on this show. Yeah. That, that Saison blend or yeah, group bo- of... Yeah, bootleg biology. So I've, I've, I've had a Saison blend that I've been working on for about two years, repitching. Um, started with cultures from four or five different places. Um, and uh, Jeff Mello at Bootleg Biology streaked it out. Picked out the the good cultures, recombined it, and uh, will be available far and wide starting uh, well before this show. And it will probably <laughs> be such a flop that it won't be available by the time this is. Uh... <laughs> you get get it on the black market. <laughs> but uh, speaking of great beer, Scott, yeah, want to talk about the River Barrel, Nishimini Creek, our great friends who sent us beer, delicious. They're on the Philly beer scene. They've been on the scene since 2012. Yes, they have three time. Philly Beer Scene Magazine Brewery of the Year, 2014, 15, and 16. Wow. Two-time JABF Vienna Style Lager Medal winner, 13 and 16. Impressive. Also bronze for Smoke Lager. Boom. Killing it. Large, expanded, recently renovated tap room with 24 beers on tap, 18 of which are rotating in seasonal limited beers. Bunch of different styles, more than just the lagers. Hoppy double IPAs, sessionable and poundable lagers, which maybe the, I don't know, maybe the smoke one's a poundable lager. Yeah, poundable smoke lager. Hard to do, I think. Well, they, obviously, <laughs> they do it well. It. What are you talking about? Two oak fermented Saison and Sour Bears. Free brewery tours on Saturdays. They have got a new second location opening this spring, so it's probably open. Check it out. <laughs> Neshaminy Creek Brewing. All right. Well, I have. Uh, I was going to do more questions, but you know we're already over. So let's let's save them for uh, the next and final sour hour. With, uh, ever, yeah. <laughs> with uh, with well, and and thanks to uh, Doctor Lambic and Sour Beer Blog for bringing you all the questions. And I I, I just have to say because the good doctor just texted me oh. and said that uh, his blog is the only blog <laughs> worth reading. <laughs> <laughs> Can we both be on next time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sour beer throwdown. That would be fun. 
It would be fun. We should have like a sour beer competition one time on the air. That would be yes. Wine tasting? Let's do it. That might be good. Hell Potting. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Hey, I'll send you some beer. Oh, he's thrown down the gauntlet. I'm in. Well, thanks, Mike. We're coming back for another show, but thank you for being here. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Thanks to all the sponsors who keep the light on here. And thanks to you listeners. Until next time, stay sour. Stay sour.